Welcome to episode two of Bygone Tales. My name is Sean Lane. I'll be your host for the evening. Uh, tonight we have an offering of, of stories by E.F. Benson, uh, William Hope Hodgson, and H.P. Lovecraft. So without further ado, let's jump on into the stories. Caterpillars by E.F. Benson I saw a month or two ago in an Italian paper that the Villa Cascana, in which I once stayed, had been pulled down and that a manufactory of some sort was in process of erection on its site. There is, therefore, no longer any reason for refraining from writing of those things which I myself saw, or imagined I saw, in a certain room and on a certain landing of the villa in question, nor from mentioning the circumstances which followed, which may or may not, according to the opinion of the reader, throw some light on or be somehow connected with this experience. The Villa Cascana was, in all ways but one, a perfectly delightful house, yet if it were standing now, nothing in the world I use the phrase in its literal sense, would induce me to set foot in it again, for I believe it to have been haunted in a very terrible and practical manner. Most ghosts, when all is said and done, do not do much harm. They may, perhaps, terrify, but the person whom they visit usually gets over their visitation. They may, on the other hand, be entirely friendly and beneficent. But the appearances in the Villa Cascana were not beneficent, and had they made their visit in a very slightly different manner, I do not suppose I should have got over it any more than Arthur Inglis did. The house stood on an ilex-clad hill not far from the Sestre de Levant on the Italian Riviera, looking out over the iridescent blues of that enchanted sea, while behind it rose the pale, green chestnut woods that climb up the hillside till they give place to the pines that, black in contrast with them, crown the slopes. All around it the garden in the luxuriance of mid-spring bloomed and was fragrant, and the scent of magnolia and rose, borne on the salt freshness of the winds from the sea, flowed like a stream through the cool vaulted rooms. On the ground floor, a broad, pillared loggia ran round three sides of the house, the top of which formed a balcony for certain rooms of the first floor. The main staircase, broad and of gray marble steps, led up from the hall to the landing outside these rooms, which were three in number, namely two big sitting rooms and a bedroom arranged in suite. The latter was unoccupied, the sitting rooms were in use. From these, the main staircase was continued to the second floor, where were situated certain bedrooms, one of which I occupied, while from the other side of the first floor landing, some half-dozen steps, led to another suite of rooms, where, at the time I am speaking of, Arthur Inglis, the artist, had his bedroom and studio. 
Thus, the landing outside my bedroom at the top of the house commanded both the landing of the first floor and also the steps that led to Inglis's room. Jim Stanley and his wife, finally, whose guest I was, occupied rooms in another wing of the house, where also were the servants' quarters. I arrived just in time for lunch on a brilliant noon of mid-May. The garden was shouting with color and fragrance, and not less delightful after my broiling walk up from the marina should have been the coming from the reverberating heat and blaze of the day into the marble coolness of the villa. Only, the reader has my bare word for this and nothing more, the moment I set foot in the house, I felt that something was wrong. This feeling, I may say, was quite vague, though very strong, and I remember that when I saw letters waiting for me on the table in the hall, I felt certain that the explanation was here. I was convinced that there was bad news of some sort for me. Yet, when I opened them, I found no such explanation of my premonition. My correspondence all reeked of prosperity. Yet this clear miscarriage of a presentment did not dissipate my uneasiness. In that cool, fragrant house, there was something wrong. I am at pains to mention this because, to the general view, it may explain that though I am, as a rule, so excellent a sleeper, that the extinction of my light upon getting into bed is apparently contemporaneous with being called on the following morning. I slept very badly on my first night in the Villa Cascana. It may also explain the fact that when I did sleep, if it was indeed in sleep that I saw what I thought I saw, I dreamed in a very vivid and original manner. Original, that is to say, in the sense that something that, as far as I knew, had never previously entered into my consciousness, usurped it then. But since in addition to this evil premonition, certain words and events occurring during the rest of the day might have suggested something of what I thought happened that night, it will be well to relate them. After lunch, then, I went round the house with Miss Stanley, and during our tour she referred, it is true, to the unoccupied bedroom on the first floor, which opened out of the room where we had lunched. We left that unoccupied, she said, because Jim and I have a charming bedroom and dressing room, as you saw, in the wing, and if we used it ourselves, we should have to turn the dining room into a dressing room and have our meals downstairs. As it is, however, we have our little flat there, Arthur Inglis has his little flat in the other passage, and I remembered, aren't I extraordinary, that you once said that the higher up you were in a house, the better you were pleased. So I put you at the top of the house instead of giving you that room. It is true that a doubt, vague as my uneasy premonition, crossed my mind at this. I did not see why Miss Stanley should have explained all this if there had not been more to explain. I allow, therefore, that the thought that there was something to explain about the unoccupied room was momentarily present to my mind. The second thing that may have borne on my dream was this. At dinner, the conversation turned for a moment on ghosts. 
Inglis, with the certainty of conviction, expressed his belief that anybody who could possibly believe in the existence of supernatural phenomena was unworthy of the name of an ass. The subject instantly dropped. As far as I can recollect, nothing else occurred or was said that could bear on what follows. We all went to bed rather early, and personally, I yawned my way upstairs, feeling hideously sleepy. My room was rather hot, and I threw all the windows wide, and, from without, poured in the white light of the moon and the love song of many nightingales. I undressed quickly and got into bed, but though I had felt so sleepy before, I now felt extremely wide awake. But I was quite content to be awake. I did not toss or turn. I felt perfectly happy listening to the song and seeing the light. Then it is possible I may have gone to sleep, and what follows may have been a dream. I thought, anyhow, that after a time the nightingales ceased singing, and the moon sank. I thought also that, if, for some explained reason, I was going to lie awake all night, I might as well read. And I remembered that I had left a book in which I was interested in the dining room on the first floor. So I got out of bed lit a candle, and went downstairs. I went into the room, saw on a side table the book I had come to look for, and then simultaneously saw that the door into the unoccupied bedroom was open. A curious gray light, not of dawn nor of moonshine, came out of it, and I looked in. The bed stood just opposite the door, a big four-poster hung with tapestry at the head, then I saw that the grayish light of the bedroom came from the bed, or rather, from what was on the bed, for it was covered with great caterpillars, a foot or more in length, which crawled over it. They were faintly luminous, and it was the light from them that showed me the room. Instead of the sucker feet of ordinary caterpillars, they had rows of pincers like crabs, and they moved by grasping what they lay on with their pincers and then sliding their bodies forward. In color, these dreadful insects were yellowish-gray, and they were covered with irregular lumps and swellings. There must have been hundreds of them, for they formed a sort of writhing, crawling pyramid on the bed. Occasionally, one fell off on the floor with a soft, fleshy thud, and though the floor was of hard concrete, it yielded to the pincer feet as if it had been putty, and crawling back, the caterpillar would mount onto the bed again to rejoin its fearful companions. They appeared to have no faces, so to speak, but at one end of them there was a mouth that opened sideways in respiration. Then, as I looked, it seemed to me as if they all suddenly became conscious of my presence. All the mouths, at any rate, were turned in my direction, and next moment they began dropping off the bed with those soft, fleshy thuds onto the floor and wriggling towards me. For one second a paralysis as of a dream was on me, but the next I was running upstairs again to my room and I remember feeling the cold of the marble steps on my bare feet. I rushed into my bedroom and slammed the door behind me, and then, I was certainly wide awake now, 
I found myself standing by my bed with the sweat of terror pouring from me. The noise of the banged door still rang in my ears. But, as would have been more usual if this had been mere nightmare, the terror that had been mine when I saw those foul beasts crawling around the bed or dropping softly on to the floor did not cease then. Awake now, if dreaming before, I did not at all recover from the horror of dream. It did not seem to me that I had dreamed. And until dawn, I sat or stood, not daring to lie down, thinking that every rustle or movement that I heard was the approach of the caterpillars. To them and the claws that bit through the cement, the wood of the door was child's play. Steel would not keep them out. But with the sweet and noble return of day, the horror vanished. The whisper of the wind became benignant again. The nameless fear, whatever it was, was smoothed out and terrified me no longer. Dawn broke, hueless at first, then it grew dove-colored, then the flaming pageant of light spread over the sky. The admirable rule of the house was that everybody had breakfast where and when he pleased, and, in consequence, it was not till lunchtime that I met any of the other members of our party, since I had breakfast on my balcony and wrote letters and other things till lunch. In fact, I got down to that meal rather late, after the other three had begun. Between my knife and fork there was a small pillbox of cardboard, and as I sat down, Inglis spoke. Do look at that, he said, since you are interested in natural history. I found it crawling on my counterpane last night, and I don't know what it is. I think that before I opened the pillbox, I expected something of the sort which I found in it. Inside it, anyhow, was a small caterpillar, grayish-yellow in color, with curious bumps and excretions on its rings. It was extremely active, and hurried around the box this way and that. Its feet were unlike the feet of any caterpillar I ever saw. They were like the pincers of a crab. I looked and shut the lid down again. No, I don't know it, I said, but it looks rather unwholesome. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I shall keep it, said Inglis. It has begun to spin. I want to see what sort of moth it turns into. I opened the box again and saw that these hurrying movements were indeed the beginning of the spinning of the web of its cocoon. Then Inglis spoke again. It has got funny feet, too, he said. They are like crab's pincers. What's the Latin for crab? Oh, yes, cancer. So in case it is unique, let's christen it Cancer Inglisensis. Then something happened in my brain, some momentary piecing together of all that I had seen or dreamed. Something in his words seemed to me to throw light on it all, and my own intense horror at the experience of the night before linked itself onto what he had just said. In effect, I took the box and threw it, caterpillar and all, out of the window. There was a gravel path just outside, and beyond it a fountain playing into a basin. The box fell onto the middle of this. Inglis laughed. So the students of the occult don't like solid facts, he said. My poor caterpillar. 
The talk went off again at once on other subjects, and I have only given in detail as they happened these trivialities in order to be sure myself that I have recorded everything that could have borne on occult subjects or on the subject of caterpillars. But at the moment when I threw the pillbox into the fountain, I lost my head. My only excuse is that, as is probably plain, the tenant of it was, in miniature, exactly what I had seen crowded onto the bed in the unoccupied room. And though this translation of those phantoms into flesh and blood, or whatever it is that caterpillars are made of, ought perhaps to have relieved the horror of the night, as a matter of fact, it did nothing of the kind. It only made the crawling pyramid that covered the bed in the unoccupied room more hideously real. After lunch, we spent a lazy hour or two strolling about the garden or sitting in the loggia, and it must have been about four o'clock when Stanley and I started off to bathe down the path that led by the fountain into which I had thrown the pillbox. The water was shallow and clear, and at the bottom of it I saw its white remains. The water had disintegrated the cardboard, and it had become no more than a few strips and shreds of sodden paper. The center of the fountain was a marble Italian cupid which squirted water out of a wineskin held under its arm, and crawling up its leg was the caterpillar. Strange and scarcely credible as it seemed, it must have survived the falling to bits of its prison and made its way to shore, and there it was, out of arm's reach, weaving and waving this way and that as it evolved its cocoon. Then, as I looked at it, it seemed to me that again, like the caterpillar I had seen last night, it saw me, and breaking out of the threads that surrounded it, it crawled down the marble leg of the cupid and began swimming like a snake across the water of the fountain towards me. It came with extraordinary speed. The fact of a caterpillar being able to swim was new to me and in another moment was crawling up the marble lip of the basin. Just then, Inglis joined us. Why, if it isn't old Cancer Inglisensis again, he said, catching sight of the beast. What a tearing hurry it is in. We were standing side by side on the path, and when the caterpillar had advanced to within about a yard of us, it stopped, and began waving again as if in doubt as to the direction in which it should go. Then it appeared to make up its mind and crawled onto Inglis's shoe. It likes me best, he said, but I don't really know that I like it. And as it won't drown, I think perhaps... He shook it off his shoe onto the gravel path and trod on it. All afternoon the air got heavier and heavier with the Sirocco that was without doubt coming up from the south and that night again I went up to bed feeling very sleepy, but below my drowsiness, so to speak, there was the consciousness, stronger than before, that there was something wrong in the house, that something dangerous was close at hand. But I fell asleep at once, and, how long after I do not know, either woke or dreamed I awoke, feeling that I must get up at once, or should be too late. Then, dreaming or awake, I lay and fought this fear, telling myself 
that I was but the prey of my own nerves, disordered by Sirocco or what not. And at the same time, quite clearly knowing in another part of my mind, so to speak, that every moment's delay added to the danger. At last, this second feeling became irresistible, and I put on coat and trousers and went out of my room onto the landing, and then I saw that I had already delayed too long, and that I was now too late. The whole of the landing of the first floor below was invisible under the swarm of caterpillars that crawled there. The folding doors into the sitting room from which opened the bedroom where I had seen them last night were shut, but they were squeezing through the cracks of it and dropping one by one through the keyhole, elongating themselves into mere strings as they passed and growing fat and lumpy again on emerging. Some, as if exploring, were nosing about the steps into the passage at the end of which were Inglis's rooms. Others were crawling on the lowest steps of the staircase that led up to where I stood. The landing, however, was completely covered with them. I was cut off. And of the frozen horror that seized me when I saw that, I can give no idea in words. Then, at last, a general movement began to take place, and they grew thicker on the steps that led to Inglis's room. Gradually, like some hideous tide of flesh, they advanced along the passage, and I saw the foremost, visible by the pale gray luminousness that came from them, reach his door. Again and again I tried to shout and warn him, in terror all the time that they would turn at the sound of my voice and mount my stair instead. But for all my efforts I felt that no sound came from my throat. They crawled along the hinge crack of his door, passing through as they had done before, and still I stood there, making impotent efforts to shout to him, to bid him escape while there was time. At last, the passage was completely empty. They had all gone. And at that moment, I was conscious for the first time of the cold of the marble landing on which I stood barefooted. The dawn was just beginning to break in the eastern sky. Six months after, I met Miss Stanley in a country house in England. We talked on many subjects, and at last she said, I don't think I have seen you since I got that dreadful news about Arthur Inglis a month ago. I haven't heard, said I. No, he has got cancer. They don't even advise an operation, for there is no hope of a cure. He is riddled with it, the doctors say. Now, during all these six months, I do not think a day had passed on which I had not had in my mind the dreams, or whatever you like to call them, which I had seen in the Villa Cascana. It is awful, is it not? she continued, and I feel, I can't help feeling that he may have... Caught it at the villa? I asked. She looked at me in blank surprise. Why did you say that? she asked. How did you know? Then she told me. In the unoccupied bedroom, a year before, there had been a fatal case of cancer. She had, of course, taken the best advice and had been told that the utmost dictates of prudence would be obeyed so long as she did not put anybody to sleep in the room, which had also been thoroughly disinfected 
and newly whitewashed and painted. But... That story was published in The Room in the Tower and Other Stories in 1912. Uh, that is one of E.F. Benson's most anthologized uh, short ghost stories. Uh, kind of of interest to, uh, to some people, the author uh, did die of esophageal cancer in 1940. Uh, I, I don't really necessarily believe that he foreshadowed his own death, but uh, it certainly... In the context of the story, um, adds a little bit of uh, add, adds an element of, of creepiness to it. All right, well, let's uh, move on to our next story, and uh, here we go. The Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson. It was a dark, starless night. We were becalmed in the Northern Pacific. Our exact position. I do not know, for the sun had been hidden during the course of a weary, breathless week by a thin haze which had seemed to float above us, about the height of our mastheads, at whiles descending and shrouding the surrounding sea. With there being no wind, we had steadied the tiller, and I was the only man on deck. The crew, consisting of two men and a boy, were sleeping forward in their den, while Will, my friend and the master of our little craft, was aft in his bunk on the port side of the little cabin. Suddenly, from out of the surrounding darkness, there came a hail. Schooner! Ahoy! The cry was so unexpected that I gave no immediate answer because of my surprise. It came again, a voice curiously throaty and inhuman, calling from somewhere upon the dark sea away on our broad port side. Schooner! Ahoy! Hello! I sung out, having gathered my wits somewhat. What are you? What do you want? You need not be afraid, answered the queer voice, having probably noticed some trace of confusion in my tone. I am only an old man. The pause sounded oddly, but it was only afterward that it came back to me with any significance. "'Why don't you come alongside, then?' I queried somewhat snappishly, for I liked not his hinting at my having been a trifle shaken. "'I... I can't. It wouldn't be safe. I...' The voice broke off, and there was silence. "'What do you mean?' I asked, growing more and more astonished. "'Why not safe?' Where are you? I listened for a moment, but there came no answer, and then a sudden indefinite suspicion of I knew not what coming to me, I stepped swiftly to the binnacle and took out the lighted lamp. At the same time, I knocked on the deck with my heel to awaken Will. Then I was back at the side, throwing the yellow funnel of light out into the silent immensity beyond our rail. As I did so, I heard a slight, muffled cry, and then one sound of a splash, as though someone had dipped oars abruptly. Yet I cannot say that I saw anything with certainty, save, it seemed to me, that with the first flash of the light, 
there had been something upon the waters, where now there was nothing. Hello there, I called. What foolery is this? But there came only the indistinct sounds of a boat being pulled away into the night. Then I heard Will's voice from the direction of the after-scuttle. What's up, George? Come here, Will, I said. What is it? he asked, coming across the deck. I told him the queer thing which had happened. He put several questions then, and after a moment's silence, he raised his hands to his lips and hailed. Boat ahoy! From a long distance away, there came back to us a faint reply, and my companion repeated his call. Presently, after a short period of silence, there grew on our hearing the muffled sound of oars, at which Will hailed again. This time, there was a reply. Put away the light! I'm damned if I will, I muttered. But Will told me to do as the voice bade, and I shoved it down under the bulwarks. Come nearer, he said, and the oar strokes continued. Then, when apparently some half-dozen fathoms distant, they again ceased. Come alongside, exclaimed Will. There's nothing to be frightened aboard here. Promise that you will not show the light. What's to do with you, I burst out, that you're so infernally afraid of the light? Because, began the voice and stopped short. Because what? I asked quickly. Will put his hand on my shoulder. Shut up a minute, old man, he said in a low voice. Let me tackle him. He leant more over the rail. See here, mister, he said. This is a pretty queer business, you coming upon us like this, right out in the middle of the blessed Pacific. How are we to know what sort of hanky-panky trick you're up to? You say there's only one of you. How are we to know unless we get a squint at you, eh? What's your objection to the light, anyway? As he finished, I heard the noise of the oars again, and then the voice came, but now from a greater distance, and sounding extremely hopeless and pathetic. I am sorry. Sorry. I would not have... I would not have troubled you, only I am hungry, and... So is she. The voice died away, and the sound of the oars dipping irregularly was born to us. Stop, sung out Will. I don't want to drive you away. Come back. We'll keep the light hidden if you don't like it. He turned to me. It's a damned queer rig, this. But I think there's nothing to be afraid of. There was a question in his tone, and I replied, No, I think the poor devil's been wrecked around here and gone crazy. The sound of the oars drew nearer. Shove that lamp back in the binnacle, said Will. Then he leaned over the rail and listened. I replaced the lamp and came back to his side. The dipping of the oars ceased some dozen yards distant. "'Won't you come alongside now?' asked Will in an even voice. "'I have had the lamp put back in the binnacle.' "'I... I cannot,' replied the voice. "'I dare not come nearer. "'I dare not even pay you for the... the provisions.' "'That's all right,' said Will, and hesitated. You're welcome to as much grub as you can take. Again, he hesitated. You are very good, exclaimed the voice. May God, who understands everything, reward you. It broke off, huskily. The, the lady, said Will, abruptly, is she? I have left her behind upon the island, came the voice. 
What island? I cut in. I know not its name, returned the voice. I would to God, it began and checked itself as suddenly. Could we not send a boat for her? asked Will at this point. No, said the voice with extraordinary emphasis. My God, no. There was a moment's pause. Then it added, in a tone which seemed a merited reproach, It was because of our want, I ventured, because her agony tortured me. I am a forgetful brute, exclaimed Will. Just wait a minute, whoever you are, and I will bring you up something at once. In a couple of minutes, he was back again, and his arms were full of various edibles. He paused at the rail. Can't you come alongside for them? he asked. No, I dare not, replied the voice, and it seemed to me that in its tones I detected a note of stifled craving, as though the owner hushed a mortal desire. It came to me, then in a flash, that the poor old creature out there in the darkness was suffering for actual need of that which Will held in his arms, and yet, because of some unintelligible dread, was refraining from dashing to the side of our little schooner and receiving it. And with the lightning-like conviction, there came the knowledge that the invisible was not mad, but sanely facing some intolerable horror. "'Damn it, Will,' I said, full of many feelings, over which predominated a vast sympathy. "'Get a box. We must float off the stuff to him in it.' This we did, propelling it away from the vessel, out into the darkness, by means of a boat hook. In a minute, a slight cry from the invisible came to us, and we knew that he had secured the box. A little later, he called out a farewell to us, and so heartful a blessing that I am sure we were the better for it. Then, without more ado, we heard the ply of oars across the darkness. Pretty soon off, remarked Will, with perhaps just a sense of injury. Wait, I replied. I think somehow he'll come back. He must have been badly needing that food. And the lady, said Will. For a moment he was silent. Then he continued. It's the queerest thing I've ever tumbled across since I've been fishing. Yes, I said and fell to pondering. And so the time slipped away. An hour, another, and still Will stayed with me, for the queer adventure had knocked all desire for sleep out of him. The third hour was three parts through, when we heard again the sound of oars across the silent ocean. Listen, said Will, a low note of excitement in his voice. He's coming just as I thought, I muttered. The dipping of the oars grew nearer, and I noted that the strokes were firmer and longer. The food had been needed. They came to a stop a little distance off the broadside, and the queer voice came again to us through the darkness. Schooner ahoy! That you? asked Will. Yes, replied the voice. I left you suddenly, but, but there was great need. The lady? questioned Will. The lady is grateful now on earth. She will be more grateful soon in heaven. Will began to make some reply in a puzzled voice, but became confused and broke off short. I said nothing. I was wondering at the curious pauses, and apart from my wonder, I was full of a great sympathy. The voice continued. We, she and I, have talked 
as we shared the result of God's tenderness and yours, Will interposed, but without coherence. I beg of you not to to belittle your deed of Christian charity this night, said the voice. Be sure that it has not escaped his notice. It stopped, and there was a full minute's silence. Then it came again. We have spoken together upon that which, which has befallen us. We had thought to go out without telling any of the terror which has come into our lives. She is with me in believing that tonight's happenings are under a special ruling, and that it is God's wish that we should tell you all that we have suffered since... Since... Yes, said Will softly. Since the sinking of the albatross. Ah, I exclaimed involuntarily. She left Newcastle for Frisco some six months ago and hasn't been heard of since. Yes, answered the voice, but some few degrees to the north of the line she was caught in a terrible storm and was dismasted. When the day came it was found that she was leaking badly and presently, it falling to a calm, the sailors took to the boats, leaving leaving a young lady, my fiance, and myself upon the wreck. We were below, gathering together a few of our belongings when they left. They were entirely callous through fear, and when we came up upon the decks, we saw them only as small shapes afar off upon the horizon. Yet we did not despair, but set to work and constructed a small raft. Upon this we put such few matters as it would hold, including a quantity of water and some ship's biscuit. Then, the vessel being very deep in the water, we got ourselves onto the raft and pushed off. It was later, when I observed that we seemed to be in the way of some tide or current which bore us from the ship at an angle, so that in the course of three hours, by my watch, her hull became invisible to our sight, her broken masts remaining in view for a somewhat longer period. Then, towards evening, it grew misty, and so through the night. The next day we were still encompassed by the mist, the weather remaining quiet. For four days we drifted through this strange haze, until, on the evening of the fourth day, there grew upon our ears the murmur of breakers at a distance. Gradually it became plainer, and somewhat after midnight it appeared to sound upon either hand at no very great space. The raft was raised upon a swell several times, and then we were in smooth water, and the noise of the breakers was behind. When the morning came, we found that we were in a sort of great lagoon. But of this we noticed little at the time, for close before us, through the enshrouding mist, loomed the hull of a large sailing vessel. With one accord we fell upon our knees and thanked God, for we thought here was an end to our perils. We had much to learn. The raft drew near to the ship, and we shouted on them to take us aboard, but none answered. Presently the raft touched against the side of the vessel, and seeing a rope hanging downwards, I seized it and began to climb. Yet I had much ado to make my way up, because a kind of gray lichenous fungus, which had seized upon the rope, and which blotched the side of the ship lividly. 
I reached the rail and clambered over it onto the deck. Here I saw that the decks were covered in great patches with the gray masses, some of them rising into nodules several feet in height. But at the time I thought less of this matter than of the possibility of there being people aboard the ship. I shouted, but none answered. Then I went to the door below the poop deck. I opened it and peered in. There was a great smell of staleness, so that I knew in a moment that nothing living was within, and with the knowledge I shut the door quickly, for I felt suddenly lonely. I went back to the side where I had scrambled up. My, my sweetheart was still sitting quietly upon the raft, Seeing me look down, she called up to know whether there were any aboard of the ship. I replied that the vessel had the appearance of having been long deserted, but that if she would wait a little, I would see whether there was anything in the shape of a ladder by which she could ascend to the deck. Then we would make a search through the vessel together. A little later, on the opposite side of the deck, I found a rope side ladder, this I carried across, and a minute afterward she was beside me. Together we explored the cabins and apartments in the after part of the ship, but nowhere was there any sign of life. Here and there, within the cabins themselves, we came across odd patches of that queer fungus, but this, as my sweetheart said, could be cleansed away. In the end, having assured ourselves that the after portion of the vessel was empty, we picked our ways to the bows between the ugly gray nodules of the strange growth, and here we made a further search which told us that there was indeed none aboard but ourselves. This being now beyond any doubt, we returned to the stern of the ship and proceeded to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. Together we cleared out and cleaned two of the cabins, and, after that, I made examination whether there was anything edible in the ship. This I soon found was so, and thanked God in my heart for his goodness. In addition to this, I discovered the whereabouts of the fresh water pump, and, having fixed it, I found the water drinkable, though somewhat unpleasant to the taste. For several days we stayed aboard the ship, without attempting to get to the shore. We were busily engaged in making the place habitable. Yet even thus early we became aware that our lot was even less to be desired than might have been imagined. For though, as a first step, we scraped away the odd patches of growth that studded the floors and walls of the cabins and saloon, yet they returned almost to their original size within the space of twenty-four hours, which not only discouraged us, but gave us a feeling of vague unease. Still, we would not admit ourselves beaten, so we set to work afresh, and not only scraped away the fungus, but soaked the places where it had been with carbolic, a can of which I had found in the pantry. Yet, by the end of the week, the growth had returned in full strength, and, in addition, it had spread to other places, as though our touching it had allowed germs from it to travel elsewhere. On the seventh morning, my sweetheart woke to find a small patch of it growing on her pillow, close to her face. At that, she came to me, so soon as she could get her garments upon her. I was in the galley at the time, lighting the fire for breakfast. "'Come here, John,' she said, and led me aft. 
When I saw the thing upon her pillow, I shuddered, and then and there we agreed to go right out of the ship and see whether we could not fare to make ourselves more comfortable ashore. Hurriedly, we gathered together our few belongings, and even among these I found that the fungus had been at work, for one of her shawls had a little lump of it growing near one edge. I threw the whole thing over the side without saying anything to her. The raft was still alongside, but it was too clumsy to guide, and I lowered down a small boat that hung across the stern, and in this we made our way to the shore. Yet, as we drew near to it, I became gradually aware that here the vile fungus, which had driven us from the ship, was growing riot. In places it rose into horrible, fantastic mounds, which seemed almost to quiver as with a quiet life when the wind blew across them. Here and there it took on the forms of vast fingers, and in others it just spread out flat and smooth and treacherous. Odd places it appeared as grotesque stunted trees, seeming extraordinarily kinked and gnarled the whole quaking vilely at times. At first it seemed to us that there was no single portion of the surrounding shore which was not hidden beneath the masses of the hideous lichen. Yet in this I found that we were mistaken, for somewhat later, coasting across the shore at a little distance, we descried a smooth, white patch of what appeared to be fine sand, and there we landed, it was not sand. What it was, I do not know. All that I have observed is that upon it the fungus will not grow, while everywhere else, save where the sand-like earth wanders oddly, pathwise, amid the gray desolation of the lichen, there is nothing but that loathsome grayness. It is difficult to make you understand how cheered we were to find one place that was absolutely free from the growth and here we deposited our belongings. Then we came back to the ship for such things as it seemed to us we should need. Among other matters, I managed to bring ashore with me one of the ship's sails, with which I constructed two small tents, which, though exceedingly rough-shaped, served the purpose for which they were intended. In these we lived and stored our various necessities, and thus, for a matter of some four weeks, all went smoothly and without particular unhappiness. Indeed, I may say with much of happiness, for, for we were together. It was on the thumb of her right hand that the growth first showed. It was only a small, circular spot, much like a little gray mole. My God, how the fear leapt into my heart when she showed me the place. We cleaned it, between us, washing it with carbolic and water, in the morning of the following day, she showed her hand to me again. The gray, warty thing had returned. For a little while, we looked at one another in silence. Then, still wordless, we started again to remove it. In the midst of the operation, she spoke suddenly. "'What's that on the side of your face, dear?' Her voice was sharp with anxiety. I put my hand up to feel. "'There, under the hair, by your ear.' a little to the front a bit. My finger rested upon the place, and then I knew. Let us get your thumb done first, I said, and she submitted, only because she was afraid to touch me until it was cleansed. 
I finished washing and disinfecting her thumb, and then she turned to my face. After it was finished, we sat together and talked a while of many things, for there had come into our lives sudden, very terrible thoughts. We were, all at once, afraid of something worse than death. We spoke of loading the boat with provisions and water and making our way out onto the sea. Yet we were helpless for many causes, and and the growth had attacked us already. We decided to stay. God would do with us what was his will. We would wait. A month, two months, three months passed, and the places grew somewhat, and there had come others. Yet we fought so strenuously with the fear that its headway was but slow, comparatively speaking. Occasionally we ventured off to the ship for such stores as we needed. There we found that the fungus grew persistently. One of the nodules on the main deck became soon as high as my head. We had now given up all thought or hope of leaving the island. We had realized that it would be unallowable to go among healthy humans with the thing from which we were suffering. With this determination and knowledge in our minds, we knew that we should have to husband our food and water, for we did not know at that time, but that we should possibly live for many years. This reminds me that I have told you that I am an old man. Judged by years, this is not so, but... But he broke off, then continued somewhat abruptly. As I was saying, we knew that we should have to use care in the matter of food, but we had no idea then how little food there was left of which to take care. It was a week later that I made the discovery that all the other bread tanks, which I had supposed full, were empty, and that, beyond odd tins of vegetables and meat and some other matters, we had nothing on which to depend but the bread in the tank which I had already opened. After learning this, I bestirred myself to do what I could and set to work at fishing in the lagoon, but with no success. At this, I was somewhat inclined to feel desperate until the thought came to me to try outside the lagoon in the open sea. Here, at times, I caught odd fish, but so infrequently that they proved of but little help in keeping us from the hunger which threatened. It seemed to me that our deaths were likely to come by hunger, and not by the growth of the thing which had seized upon our bodies. We were in this state of mind when the fourth moon wore out. Then I made a very horrible discovery. One morning, a little before midday, I came off from the ship with a portion of the biscuits which were left. In the mouth of her tent, I saw my sweetheart sitting, eating something. What is it, my dear? I called out as I leapt ashore. Yet on hearing my voice, she seemed confused and, turning slyly, threw something toward the edge of the little clearing. It fell short, and a vague suspicion having arisen within me, I walked across and picked it up. It was a piece of the gray fungus. As I went to her with it in my hand, she turned deadly pale, then arose red. I felt strangely dazed and frightened. My dear, my dear, I said, and could say no more. Yet at my words she broke down and cried bitterly.
Gradually, as she calmed, I got from her the news that she had tried it the preceding day, and, and liked it. I got her to promise on her knees not to touch it again, however great our hunger. After she had promised, she told me that the desire for it had come suddenly, and that, until the moment of desire, she had experienced nothing towards it but the most extreme repulsion. Later in the day, feeling strangely restless and much shaken with the thing which I had discovered, I made my way along one of the twisted paths formed by the white, sand-like substance which led among the fungoid growth. I had, once before, ventured along there, but not to any great distance. This time, being involved in perplexing thought, I went much further than hitherto. Suddenly, I was called to myself by a queer, hoarse sound on my left. Turning quickly, I saw that there was movement among an extraordinarily shaped mass of fungus close to my elbow. It was swaying uneasily, as though it possessed life of its own. Abruptly, as I stared, the thought came to me that the thing had a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a distorted human creature. Even as the fancy flashed into my brain, there was a slight, sickening noise of tearing, and I saw that one of the branch-like arms was detaching itself from the surrounding gray masses and coming toward me. The head of the thing, a shapeless gray ball, inclined in my direction. I stood stupidly, and the vile arm brushed across my face. I gave out a frightened cry and ran back a few paces. There was a sweetish taste upon my lips where the thing had touched me. I licked them, and was immediately filled with an inhuman desire. I turned and seized a mass of the fungus. Then more and more. I was insatiable. In the midst of devouring, the remembrance of the morning's discovery swept into my mazed brain. It was sent. It was sent by God. I dashed the fragment I held to the ground. Then, utterly wretched and feeling a dreadful guiltiness, I made my way back to the little encampment. I think she knew, by some marvelous intuition which love must have given, so soon as she set eyes on me. Her quiet sympathy made it easier for me, and I told her of my sudden weakness yet omitted to mention the extraordinary thing which had gone before. I desired to spare her all unnecessary terror. But for myself, I had added an intolerable knowledge to breed an incessant terror in my brain, for I doubted not but that I had seen the end of one of those men who had come to the island in the ship in the lagoon, and in that monstrous ending I had seen our own Thereafter, we kept from the abominable food, though the desire for it had entered into our blood. Yet our drear punishment was upon us, for day by day, with monstrous rapidity, the fungoid growth took hold of our poor bodies. Nothing we could do would check it materially, and so we who had been human became... Well, it matters less each day, only... Only we had been man and maid. And day by day, the fight is more dreadful to withstand the hunger lust for the terrible lichen.
A week ago, we ate the last of the biscuit, and since that time, I have caught three fish. I was out there fishing tonight when your schooner drifted upon me out of the mist. I hailed you, you know the rest, and may God, out of his great heart, bless you for your goodness to a couple of poor, outcast souls. There was a dip of an oar, another. Then the voice came again, and for the last time, sounding through the slight surrounding mist, ghostly and mournful, God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye, we shouted together hoarsely, our hearts full of many emotions. I glanced around me. I became aware that the dawn was upon us. The sun flung a stray beam across the hidden sea, pierced the mist dully, and lit upon the receding boat with a gloomy fire. Indistinctly, I saw something nodding between the oars. I thought of a sponge, a great, gray, nodding sponge. The oars continued to ply. They were gray, as was the boat and my eyes searched a moment vainly for the conjunction of hand and oar. My gaze flashed back to the head. It nodded forward as the oars went backward for the stroke. Then the oars were dipped, the boat shot out of the patch of light, and the the thing went nodding into the mist. Well, that story was first published in 1907 in an edition of the Blue Book magazine. Uh, it's been reprinted in, in numerous publications. Uh, probably the most, the most notable uh, would be Alfred Hitchcock's anthology, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents Stories They Wouldn't Let Me Do on TV. Now, even though he never actually filmed it for his show, it was, in fact, filmed for an episode of the 1958 show, Suspense. Uh, it was also turned, uh, adapted into a Japanese movie called, I believe, Matango in 1963. Uh, when it was shown on American television, it was shown under the title of Attack of the Mushroom People. Um, interesting movie, let's just say that. Uh, interesting movie. Well, all right, let's, uh, let's move on to our last story of the evening, and uh, here we go. The Cats of Ulthar by H.P. Lovecraft It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat, and this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophar. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. And Ulthar, before ever the Burgess forbade the killing of cats, 
there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But, whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near to their hovel. And, from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of cats hated these odd folk, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark trees. When through some avoidable oversight a cat was missed and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day, a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace they told fortunes for silver and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers? None could tell. But it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with human bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was in this singular caravan a little boy with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow, and, when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Menes smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms toward the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night the wanderers left Ulthar, and were never seen again, and the householders were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. 
From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished. Cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Crannon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Menace's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, to a breast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, large and small, black, gray, striped yellow and white. None was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Crannon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty. Though, in so doing, he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thul the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was subsequently much talk among the burgesses of Ulthar. Zath, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lean notary, and Crannon and Shang and Thule were overwhelmed with questions. Even Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned, and given a sweetmeat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes and of the sky during the prayer, of the doings of cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end, the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told of by traders in Hotheg and discussed by travelers in Nur, namely, that in Ulthar no man may kill a cat. <laughs> Thank you.
and that was published in 1920 in the literary journal Tryout. Um, that particular story was a favorite of the of the author H.P. Lovecraft's, and was considered by himself to be one of his best tales inspired by the works of Lord Dunsany. And uh, kind of of funny note, uh, a, there there is some controversy between a few of the Lovecraft scholars as to whether or not that's actually a Dunsanian tale. But since the author considered it such, I, I think we have to go with his opinion on the matter. Well, yeah, thank you again for, uh, for spending an evening listening to me, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the stories that we, that we presented this evening. Um, if you have any comments or uh, suggestions, um, feel free to contact us. Uh, we, we can be reached. Uh, our website is at mccartneylane.com, and then just look for the link for the podcast, Bygone Tales. Uh, you can also reach out to our, to our email, which is bygonetales, B-Y-G-O-N-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a presence on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast. Uh, although I have to admit, I'm I'm not the mo- not the best at staying uh, staying in touch on on Facebook. But I, I, I will do my best if you uh, if you leave a comment or, or contact us there. I will try to respond. Um, if you uh, if you have time and you and, and you got this uh, show through iTunes. Uh, it would be great help, and I would appreciate it immensely if you could uh, leave us a rating on iTunes. That uh, that just helps our exposure, um, lets other people uh, be aware that we exist. And uh, you know, the more the more listeners I have, the uh, the longer I am likely to uh, to be doing this show. So, uh, thank you again for uh, for spending the evening listening to us. And uh, until next time, I'll. Uh, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care. If you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out oldstyletales.com, all one word. You know, I, I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. Editions featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic. And really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand. And if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of all the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. 
please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com